Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome. Thanks to all of you here in person, online, who are here for what is an important and sobering announcement with this year's edition of Heritage's Index of Military Strength. The good news is that it's still America and we will fix this problem. The bad news is that it's America and we have a problem. And we have a problem with our military strength. Keep in mind that while we will be focused today on hard power, that is the nuts and bolts, the ammunition, the planes, and of course the ships that we are lacking, this is also a comment about why we care about these things, and it is to restore self-governance. And obviously, as the Wall Street Journal has already reported this morning about the product that we have released today, it is about hard power. It is about the number of ships and planes we have. It's also about personnel. And we're having a very hard time, as some of our scholars have reported, in recruitment because of the woke agenda that one particular political movement in this country prioritizes over American military readiness. There is no way, as our scholars report, as you will hear today, that the United States can engage in a two-front war, and in fact, we're increasingly dubious that we could even engage in a single-front war because of this lack of readiness. Considering the existential threat in the world, which is the Chinese Communist Party, obviously rejuvenated after Xi Jinping's re-election, on Sunday, the United States needs to get busy in fixing this problem. We're going to do so, of course, and we're going to do so not just by saying this is a blank check to spend on whatever the heck we want to spend as long as you put military in it. Note that that's a warning from Heritage, not just to think that this is a blank check, but to spend, as we outline in our budget blueprint, on the right things for American military readiness to protect self-governance of free people around the world. The one person in Congress you could find who is so eloquent about this happens to be with us today. Congressman Mike Gallagher is, in fact, the man of the hour. He served Wisconsin's 8th Congressional District since 2017, seven years prior in the U.S. Marine Corps, including two deployments to Iraq. He served on the Central Command Assessment Team in the Middle East and has worked with multiple agencies within the intelligence community. Congressman Gallagher serves on the House Armed Services Committee, the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. From 2019 to 2021, he served as co-chair of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, which develops strategic approaches to defense against evolving cyber threats to the United States. One logistical note, after Congressman Gallagher's remarks, we'll have a conversation with the editor of the index, Dakota Wood, and our executive vice president, Derek Morgan, you will, of course, have opportunities to ask questions. Please join me in welcoming Congressman Gallagher. Well, thank you, Kevin, and thank you to uh, the Heritage Foundation for inviting me here today, and congratulations on the publication of the 2023 index of military strength, which is a incredible accomplishment. Dakota and the entire team here, you should be very proud. Although I have to say that I don't know what was more depressing, uh, watching my Green Bay Packers lose to the New York Jets, 
which I didn't even know was a professional football team until I was there on Sunday, or reading this year's military index, which for the first time in the history of the Heritage Index downgrades the overall rating of the U.S. military. It's now weak. Uh, reading the index, I thought to myself, you know, it sure would be nice if we didn't have to spend all this money on military strength in pursuit of peace. But here's the problem. We've tried everything else, and none of it seems to work. For example, at the height of utopianism that characterized the interwar period, the Senate actually attempted to outlaw war by ratifying the Kellogg-Briand Pact on January 16, 1929. The only no vote was actually Wisconsin Senator John Blaine, who, as the author of the 21st Amendment, must have understood that outlawing war would work about as well as outlawing alcohol. Blaine subsequently lost his Senate seat. He was censured by the Wisconsin state legislature for his vote, while Secretary Kellogg won the Nobel Peace Prize. But just a few years later, signatories, including Japan, Germany, Austria, Italy, violated the treaty, eventually leading to World War II. In fact, today, war remains outlawed, and yet war persists. Because these same utopian delusions persist. Consider President Biden at the UN last fall, wish casting that we were closing an era of relentless war, an opening one of relentless diplomacy, in which, quote, many of our greatest concerns cannot be solved or even addressed by the force of arms. Or days before Vladimir Putin's latest invasion of Ukraine, Biden's special presidential envoy for climate, John Kerry, expressing his confusion about the looming invasion, saying, I thought we lived in a world that had said no to that kind of activity. Meanwhile, senior State Department officials projected their enlightened sensibilities onto Putin, scolding him that instead of invading Ukraine, he should focus on building back better. Or consider the Biden administration's national defense strategy, the cornerstone of which is a concept called integrated deterrence. Beneath the jargon, the basic idea is that we can de-emphasize hard power, yet still bolster deterrence by better integrating soft power, allies, and technology into military operations. But here's the issue. While the Pentagon is talking about doing less, the rest of the interagency is not talking about doing more. If you examine the strategic plans released this year by the Departments of State, Treasury, Commerce, the term integrated deterrence is nowhere to be found. Thus, it fails on its own terms. Yet, the administration has gone farther, deluding itself into thinking that integrated deterrence succeeded in Ukraine. Barely one month into the war, anonymous Pentagon officials bravely bragged to the Washington Post that integrated deterrence comes out smelling pretty good from this. Yet tens of thousands of dead Ukrainians, millions more displaced, should not smell, look, or feel good. A Post profile lauding Austin's application of integrated deterrence in Ukraine included Under Secretary of Defense for Policy Colin Call boasting that, quote, we are literally defying the laws 
of bureaucratic physics by how fast we're going in Ukraine. Now, I, I'm a Marine, not a physicist, but Newton's first law of motion states that an object in motion will stay in motion unless acted upon by an external force. And on February 24th, 2022, deterrence failed in Ukraine because as Putin put his invasion plans into motion, President Biden repeatedly signaled that he would not put American hard power in Putin's way. The president preemptively pulled American troops out of Ukraine, abandoned our embassy, sent our ships sailing out of the Black Sea, even seemed to greenlight a minor incursion. The administration went so far as to limit the pre-war transfer of defense equipment out of a fear that it might provoke Putin. Instead, the Biden administration largely relied on the threat of sanctions and sternly worded statements to deter Putin and deterrence disintegrated at the cost of tens of thousands of lives, hundreds of billions of dollars, and increasing threats of nuclear escalation. Eventually, after we went back and forth on the House Armed Services Committee in a hearing, Secretary Austin and Chairman Milley actually admitted that integrated deterrence failed in Ukraine. And that quote, short of the commitment of US military forces into Ukraine proper, Putin was not deterrable. This was an important, if inadvertent, admission about the supremacy of hard power in matters of deterrence, one that has profound implications for how we deter a war with China over Taiwan. For when it comes to Taiwan, time is not on our side. We have entered the window of maximum danger, or the Davidson window, which is a reference to former Indo-Pacific Commander Phil Davidson's assessment that China may make a move on Taiwan within the next five years. Divesting of hard power within the Davidson window is dangerous. And yet the Biden administration insists on doing just that. The Biden defense budget would force the Navy to bottom out at 280 ships and the Air Force to cut over 1,000 airplanes by 2027, just in time for the PLA's 100th anniversary and target date for having the capability to take Taiwan. Most of the transformative technology that DOD is investing in with its much hype 9.5% increase in the research and development uh, budget from hypersonic weapons to joint all domain command and control or JADC2 may not be fielded until the 2030s, if at all. Making matters worse, we are running low on the munitions that are essential to both Ukraine and Taiwan. Two months into the war, we had already sent Ukraine a quarter of our entire Stinger stockpile and more than seven years worth of javelins. Now, admittedly, some people think I'm too pessimistic and think that the 69-year-old Xi Jinping, who this week is securing a third term as general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, will abandon his lifelong ambition of taking Taiwan. But look at what he's just recently gotten away with. Hong Kong, genocide, covering up a coronavirus pandemic that's killed at least 6 million people globally. 
Furthermore, she's problems. Structural economic slowdown, skyrocketing household debt, the demographic buzzsaw of dealing with more retirees than any society in human history all get worse in the 2030s. Why would he wait? We must not gamble the fate of the free world on Xi's restraint, nor on our own utopian delusions that somehow we've evolved beyond wars of territorial expansion. We must put American hard power in Xi's path before it's too late. While long-term investments to rebuild American military superiority in general and maritime superiority in particular are critical, the reality is we will not be able to build the Navy the nation needs in the next five years. But what we can do within the Davidson window, however, is build an anti-Navy. And by anti-Navy, I mean asymmetric forces and weapons designed to target the Chinese Navy, deny control of the seas surrounding Taiwan, and prevent PLA amphibious forces from gaining a lodgment on the island. The first step in building this anti-Navy does not actually require us to defy any laws of physics, bureaucratic or otherwise, though technically it is rocket science. Now that we are no longer bound by the INF Treaty, we can surge long-range conventional precision fires in three concentric rings across the Pacific. The first island chain, the second island chain plus the Central Pacific Islands, and the outer edges of the theater, including Alaska, Hawaii, and Australia. In the first, range, the first ring, we need shorter range anti-ship and air defense missiles, such as the Naval Strike Missile, Long Range Anti-Ship Missile, and SM-6. These weapons will be operated by Army and Marine Corps stand-in forces, especially in the Southern Japanese and Northern Philippine Islands, and wherever possible, they should be containerized so as to confuse Chinese targeting. In the second ring, we need extended range maritime strike tomahawks and other intermediate range missiles. And in the third ring, we need longer range intermediate missiles with advanced energetic materials in places like Alaska and Australia's Northern Territory. The point is that the PLA rocket force, which is China's anti-Navy, has fielded low cost weapons to keep American ships out of the fight and target American forces concentrated in a few fixed locations. We must use this same logic against them. Building an anti-Navy that can sink PLA ships and amphibious landing craft in port, in the strait, and on Taiwan's beaches. The second step in building an anti-Navy is to stockpile munitions before the shooting starts. That's one of the big lessons of Ukraine. At current production rates, for example, it will take at least two years to boost Javelin production from 2,100 to 4,000 missiles annually. And in many cases, Chinese companies are the sole source or a primary supplier for the energetic materials that are used in our missiles. To fix this, the Pentagon should stop buying minimum sustaining rates of critical munitions and start maxing out the capacity of active production lines through multi-year procurement contracts. Drawing on the lessons of Operation Warp Speed, we can also modernize the Defense Production Act and use it to provide direct project financing, automatic fast-tracking of permits, and investments in defense workforce training. 
Consider that when I first deployed to Iraq in 2007, most Marines were still riding around in, in highly vulnerable Humvees. And then when I returned in 2008, as if by magic, suddenly we all had MRAPs. But of course, it wasn't magic. It was because Secretary Gates made fielding them his highest acquisition priority. The next Secretary of Defense must similarly make rebuilding our munitions industrial base a personal crusade. Now, the third and final step in building uh, this anti-Navy is to turn all of the talk about arming Taiwan to the teeth into reality. This starts with moving Taiwan to the front of the foreign military sales line and clearing the backlog of $14 billion worth of FMS items that have been approved but not delivered to Taiwan. Congress can go even further by providing direct financial assistance to Taiwan and by giving the Pentagon the same drawdown authority to directly provide defense articles to Taiwan that it already enjoys with Ukraine. For example, rather than demilitarizing hundreds of harpoon missiles or putting them into deep storage, the Pentagon could utilize a Taiwan drawdown authority and make any modernizations or necessary certifications and send these missiles along with their associated launchers to Taiwan. We should also learn from the first two Taiwan Strait crises where President Eisenhower dramatically increased American combat power on and around the island. This means increasing the size and frequency of American active duty and National Guard rotations on Taiwan and giving them the tools they need to help put Chinese amphibious assault ships at the bottom of the Taiwan Strait. We can complete these steps within the Davidson window. In concert with the top line increase, we can pay for it by reducing the size of DOD's civilian workforce, larger than the Army, the Joint Staff, the Office of Secretary of Defense, the overall number of flag and general officers, and the fast-growing DEI bureaucracy. We can recycle valuable assets that contribute nothing to warfighting, like golf courses. We can resurrect the 2015 Defense Business Board study of DOD's core business practices, which identified a path to saving $125 billion over five years, more than enough to build both the anti-Navy and the Navy the nation needs. In other words, we don't lack options. We lack leadership. We lack leadership in the Pentagon capable of bending the bureaucracy to their will in service of a defense strategy that prioritizes hard power. And we lack leadership in the White House that understands the paradox at the heart of deterrence, that to avoid war, you must convince your adversary that you are both capable and willing to wage war. If we ignore hard lessons, about hard power, if we continue down this utopian path of disarmament, or if we allow the fear of escalation to dominate our decisions, we will feed Xi's appetite for conquest and we will invite war itself by choosing instead to put an anti-Navy and Xi's path, we can deter war in the short term and buy time to build a Navy that defeats communism over the long term. Thank you, and I'm happy to entertain some questions.
question, I'll call on you. If you could identify yourself and any organization that you're affiliated with, we'd really appreciate that. Yes, sir. We have a microphone. Congressman, uh, I'm Dr. Michael Krause. I'm a soldier no longer young. <laughs> I recently celebrated at my family, I'll say two vignettes. One, I celebrated my 80th birthday, and I told my family of eight grandsons and granddaughters that I was not doing a handoff very well. We're in for tough times. You give me uh, the second uh, vignette uh, is now there is hope in the anti-Navy that you speak of. Now there is hope in doing the kinds of preparation. So my question to you, I've addressed Norwich University, MS4, uh, uh, future leaders, and I've, I've been pretty hard on them. What can I tell my grandsons and granddaughters that gives us the kind of hope that you just articulated and also the MS4 new lieutenants in the Army and also the Marine Corps? Thank you very much. Well, thank you for your question. Thank you for your service. Uh, though you may no longer be young, I'm told that old soldiers never die. They just fade away. It's a great Wisconsinite uh, once said that, in fact. Uh, or at least he got his commission to West Point from Wisconsin. Uh, uh, I would say a few things. Um, and I really am concerned. Something has happened in the last six years that I, I've, or the last two years that I've never encountered in my time in Congress, which now I have parents coming up to me whose kids are considering going into the military enlisting or going to a service academy, and they're saying, you know, is this a good idea? And that's a new glitch in the matrix that is very, very troubling. So I would say, one, absolutely. I still think the best decision I ever made in my life was joining the United States Marine Corps. It's a phenomenal experience for every young men and women who want to serve this great country of ours. Absolutely do it. All the problems we have with perceived politicization of the military, I believe we can get those fixed. I believe we're gonna have a very productive um, agenda if Republicans take control of the House, one that is squarely focused on war fighting and rebuilding our excellence and focus when it comes to matters of war fighting. I think you're, I think you're gonna see a change. And I think the American people are gonna support that change. The other thing I would say though is, to, in my mind, all of this comes down to basic love of country. In other words, how do you convince young men and women to fight and die for a country that in some parts of the country we're teaching them is evil? a racist or a neo-colonial hellscape that must constantly apologize for its past sins and be afraid of its shadows. In other words, we need to have confidence that our values are indeed superior to the values, if that term is even the right one, that the Chinese Communist Party is putting out there. And the final thing I'd say is, I believe we do face an existential threat from the Chinese Communist Party. And so we're gonna need everybody, those that choose to serve, those that choose to go to the private sector. We need everybody to get on Team America because we're not destined necessarily to win this competition. We have to work hard, not only to prevent World War III, but win the long-term competition. So please don't lose faith in the basic goodness of this country. It may not be perfect, but it happens to be the best experiment in self-government in human history. So let us not screw it up. Let us not be the generation that screws the whole thing up.
Bushert. By the way, the hard questions go to Dakota's panel. <laughs> Hi, uh, Pat Spann. I'm a 69 West Point grad. And at one of our uh, class luncheons that we have quarterly in McLean, uh, our rep at the uh, Association of Graduates mentioned that 17 congressmen did not nominate any um, any um, ca uh, future cadets. And I'm, uh, my question is, does... Is that a, just, I uh, think, a lack of uh, interest in the young men or women, or is it uh, something else in Congress? I can't believe seven, because each congressman, for people to know, each congressman, at least when I was there, was allowed to have five cadets in resident at one time. So you usually had one a year, and then one year you had two, and if someone dropped out, you could replace them the following year. So that, I just was amazed that 17 congressmen did not nominate anybody. Well, with, thank you for that. Thank you for your service. I'm, I'm always indebted to Army officers. I don't know. This is my lot in life as a Marine. Uh, without knowing the specifics of those 17 cases, quite honestly, it would shock me if the explanation were there was an interest within a congressional district of 750,000 people to have five or so young kids apply for the service academies. That, that would shock me. So I doubt that's it. And, and I don't know what the issue is. I, I just would say, notwithstanding some of the controversies we've had over curriculum at, at service academies and some of the back and forth we've had in the Armed Service Committee with Chairman Milley and others uh, on the CNO, uh, I would say the best part of my job uh, is getting to nominate young kids to go to the service academies. And this kind of gets to your question too, sir. Something that should give you hope, I think, is the quality of young Americans that are applying. I mean, it's so competitive. I, I don't think I could get in if I were a high school kid applying today. And it is, it's so powerful to see the parents' reaction too. I stole this idea from a colleague of mine, um, uh, but I've, I've used it for the last six years, that when we get a notification from the service academies before, a little bit ahead of when the family does. So I'll call the school and I'll tell the principal to get the kid out of class and these kids are all, you know, they're all, they, they have a spotless record. They've never been in trouble. So for the first time in their lives, they think they're getting suspended. So they sort of do the Charlie Brown walk to the principal's office. And then I'm on the phone or I'm there in person. And, uh, you know, I say, hey, Mike Gallagher, you don't know me. I'm your, your member of Congress. I just want to be the first to congratulate you on getting in to West Point or Naval Academy. And we're just so proud of your accomplishment and look forward to you serving this country. And you know, a lot of times these kids will cry. The parents will cry. I had my tear ducts removed a few years ago in the Marine Corps, so I don't cry, but sometimes it gets a little dusty in the room. But it's such a great opportunity for kids that I don't know. I, I have to look into those 17 cases. And if it's a matter of members of Congress not getting out there and promoting the opportunity, well, that's a dereliction of duty. Yeah, hi, Congressman. I'm Mike Lynn with the Washington Times. And before everybody boos, I was also a soldier once and fought Jeez. in Iraq myself. Got any uh, sailors, any Marines? Gosh. <laughs> no, I, I've written several stories in the paper about the problems with the with the military in the last couple of years. What I'm specifically interested in is what you and the GOP plan on doing some specifics if you end up taking one or both houses up on Capitol Hill uh, in a couple of or next month. Sure. Well, with the, the caveat that I, you know, I don't speak for who will be the chairman of the committee, Mike Rogers, who's phenomenal, uh, but I, I'll probably be a subcommittee chair. I think the North Star for all of our efforts has to be warfighting, as I alluded to in my speech. If you read 
Marine Corps Doctrinal Publication 1, Warfighting, it says the military has two purposes, to fight wars and train to fight wars, and anything that distracts from those two purposes is not worth taxpayer money. I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what it says. That has to guide all of our efforts. So anything that does not contribute to our warfighting ability should not be funded. Now, I would go further and say some of the controversies we've had over the growing diversity, equity, and inclusion, bureaucracy in the military uh, are a problem that we will address in the next Congress. And I do think we're going to need to rebalance our overall tooth to tail ratio. I identified some areas where we can start. I have amendments in this year's NDAA that at least require a study of the growing size of the Joint Staff, of OSD, et cetera, et cetera. Arnold Prunaro has a great book recently that talks about the way in which you know our acquisition workforce is 175,000 people, almost the size of the Marine Corps. I mentioned the civilian workforce, which is 813,000, I think, at last count, larger than the size of the Army. So I do think those are areas where Republicans can be more responsible stewards of the taxpayer dollars. At the same time, we're arguing for a bigger increase in defense investment. But here's the other thing we need. And what we, if we are in charge of the House, I can't be, speak for the Senate. Um, uh, they spend plenty of time speaking for themselves. Um, uh, we need it all to add up to a coherent strategy. What is our plan in simple terms, not in highly acronymed jargon or highly, you know, bureaucratic language to defend Taiwan? from a looming Chinese invasion. If the Pentagon can't articulate that, it's gonna be hard for us who consider ourselves navalists or proponents of defense spending to make a case to our constituents that this is a sound investment of their money. We need to force them to articulate this in simple and direct language. So those are just a few ideas, I'm happy to elaborate. Uh, Congressman, I'm uh, Harold Hagen, uh, Major General, Norwegian Defense Attaché to the US and Canada. Uh, thank you very much for, for sharing your views and in, in this open audience. I'm, I'm curious about one thing. Um, one of the big force multipliers that the U.S. has is France. Uh, I have 140 colleagues from different nations all around the world that brave themselves about, you know, working with their most important and strongest ally. Um, I would like to hear you elaborate a bit on working with allies and partners, uh, which I think will be extremely important in the future as well, as we share the same values and eventually we'll fight the same fight. Uh, so first of all, thank you for your country's uh, friendship uh, with ours and, and contributions to, to both of our security. It's very much appreciated, certainly appreciated, I think, in a bipartisan fashion on Capitol Hill. Maybe I'll just go quickly region by region. Let's start with, with Europe. Um, I welcome some of the rhetoric we've seen from NATO members in general and Western European countries in particular, particularly the Germans, about rearming, about investing more in their defense, about contributing more to Ukraine. The fact is the United States can't do all of this by ourselves. We need some of our European allies to step up. That's a positive development. And I'll go further and say, I think what Secretary Austin is trying to do with his routine process for coordinating with all of the members who have made promises is a good effort and it deserves bipartisan support. But we need to make sure uh, people actually deliver. And I think the fundamental problem we have in terms of our rhetoric surrounding NATO is that we, and I'm saying politicians, US politicians, are obsessed with the inputs 
and not paying enough attention to the outputs. And by that, I mean what's the thing you constantly hear when people criticize NATO? It's 2% of GDP, 2% of GDP. Well, that's important. I want every member to meet the 2% promise, but I'm in some ways more interested in what that 2% buys. And if it doesn't buy things that work together, if we don't have a coherent, integrated allied plan for defending the Baltic states against Russian aggression, then that money is wasted. We should also look for every opportunity to identify new partners who aren't former NATO allies, though we just got a couple more NATO allies, which is, is a good thing. I think the Ukrainians have proven how important it is and how powerful it is when you have friends that are willing to fight. And that, to me, for those who are concerned that we're overextended in the world and may want to retrench, well, maybe you can find efficiencies if you're willing to work by, with, and through allies and partners on the ground that can fight. That's the lesson I learned from my time in Iraq, and I think we saw that also play out in Syria, in some cases, and Afghanistan. Go, moving to the Middle East, when it comes to allies and partners, my concern is this administration, much like the Obama administration before it, has gotten the basic alliance structure wrong. There's a historic level of cooperation underway between Israel and the Sunni Arab Gulf states. We've never seen this happen before. We should harness it. The Abraham Accords is the foundation for regional stability. Put differently, if you want us to do less in the Middle East, the only responsible way to reduce American force posture is by working more aggressively with that emerging alliance. And it's alliance built in opposition to Iran. Iran is the long pole in the tent, right? We made the mistake under multiple administrations of prioritizing Middle East peace when that was not a top three issue for our Sunni Arab allies. So we have an opportunity in the Middle East to build upon the Abraham Accords and bring in some countries into that framework, not only sort of the grand prize, which would be Saudi Arabia, uh, but that are in other regions, Indonesia, for example, which leads me to the Indo-Pacific. Yeah, obviously, I've been a critic of integrated deterrence. I've written about it. I just spoke about it. But if we, were, if we wanted to integrate uh, diplomacy into military deterrence in the Indo-Pacific, well, what would we be doing? Well, at the top of the list, as I alluded to, we would, we would be spending a lot more time and energy building our relationship with the Philippines and Japan, two treaty allies that we need basing agreements with. We would be spending, in a way where you can get a lot of bang for your buck, a lot of time in all these, 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 these islands that we tend to neglect, right? We've seen this play out in the Solomon Islands, the dangers of taking your eye off that ball and allowing the Chinese to fill the vacuum. The compact states, why haven't we come up with an agreement with the compact states? That's low hanging fruit in the Indo-Pacific. The head of, uh, I think Vanuatu, or, or who was the head of Palau was saying uh, he's willing to host expanded U.S. military facilities and harden all of our infrastructure. There's so many opportunities across the Indo-Pacific. And the final thing I'd say is I do think the heart of the free world um, is, and I don't mean this as an insult to anyone who's not in Five Eyes, but the fact is our Five Eyes partners are, are our closest allies. I salute the AUKUS agreement. I think that was a great achievement. I, I praised uh, uh, the Pentagon officials who are, are, are responsible for that. Here's the problem with AUKUS, and it gets to the main message I, I hope you take away from my speech. The promise of AUKUS is Australian nuclear subs that aren't going to be fielded until the mid to late 2030s. So that's good, but that doesn't solve our short-term problem. Why aren't we harnessing AUKUS 
in order to field technology in the next two years. I mentioned intermediate range missiles in northern Australia. They could have sovereign control if they need it. But there are many ways where we can build upon our closest alliances. The other problem we have with AUKUS, with both the Brits and the Aussies, is we still have these arcane ITAR rules, which prevent us from collaborating technologically. So that's just a long way of me saying, even in the alliances that we think are, are really healthy right now, there's so much more we can do to get uh, more defense at less cost. Well, Congressman, yeah. uh, thank you very much for being here today. That was an excellent uh, opening and speech and uh, elucidation of the principles of keeping America strong. Please join me in welcoming and thanking thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Dakota Wood is going to join me up here on stage to uh, discuss a little bit more in detail on the index of military strength in 2023. Uh, Dakota, we start here at Heritage. The first thing we talk about is the solid foundation of data and research. Can you just uh, describe for a little bit how we came about to this, these conclusions we reached in the report? What kind of data are you looking at and how do you build that uh, foundation? Well, so we want to publish, <laughs> so we don't delve into any classified materials. All the things that we go to are open source, and that could be interviews, certainly congressional testimony, uh, budget documents. If the Army wants to buy something, they've got to submit a request for that, right? So we spent a lot of time uh, building on uh, a quarter century, 36 years, uh, some of our individuals that have prior military service and are understanding these things, diving into those materials and then extracting from the public record the things that are relevant to hard military power. And so every comment that we make in the index, every figure that we cite, every assessment is linked to some source, something like 2,500 footnotes or whatever for the geeks in the crowd, uh, where anybody can go to the same material that we went to and then decide for themselves, are we accurately portraying it or not, right? So we think that it's a wonderful compendium of information that anybody else would have to spend months accumulating if they knew where to go. We put all that together in one volume, and it's that data that undergirds all of the insights and the final assessments, the conclusions we come to. Yeah, and that's uh, we've got a long history at Heritage of doing that, of having, uh, whether you agree with recommendations or not, you know where we found the data, you can go find it yourself. So that's, that's wonderful to hear. Can you talk to us a little bit about this main headline that is coming out uh, today that we're regarding overall military strength as weak? How did we come to that conclusion and what does that mean? Uh, so it's alarming and uh, we didn't do that uh, with a smile on our face at all. We, we have a range of very strong to very weak and gradations in between and we, we specifically structured our, our methodology and our scoring so that they're big chunky things, right? I mean, how do you determine the difference between 70 and 71 on a 100 point scale, right? So things really have to be dramatic in the assessed year to cause us to either improve or, 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 or decline in our, in our assessment of the services. And we've just seen this trend over time that readiness is in the tank. Uh, most of the uh, equipment that the services use is just old. Uh, the average age of an Air Force fighter in the U.S. Air Force is 32 years old. Minutemen three uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles that are still sitting in silos were first acquired in the early 1970s, right? So these are just examples of the kinds of equipment that people were using. We, we specifically stated in there that this is not an indictment of a sailor, soldier, guardian, marine, uh, coast guardsman, whomever. Uh, we have wonderful people that are working extraordinary hours every week, repeated deployments, but they're, what they're equipped with is stuff that was brought in in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. 
you know. So if, if, if an aircraft off of a carrier or, or an airbase flies a sortie of two or three hours, doesn't meet any opposition, doesn't drop a bomb, you're still using flight time on that airframe, right? And so the, over the last 20 years of sustained use, uh, the services and their forces have just gotten progressively older. They're not being modernized or replaced you know, in concert with that use. And so the military we have is just dramatically too small. The Navy is half the size it was uh, during the Cold War. Uh, the uh, Marine Corps and the Army, perhaps two-thirds. The Air Force is short 650 pilots. So it's a numbers game. So what we did historically is see how much military power is actually used in a major war like Korea or Vietnam or Desert Storm. The United States would want to do that in more than one place at a time. So if we're going to commit to defense of, of NATO allies in Europe, does that mean that you can't cover down on Japan or the Philippines or providing support to Taiwan? So the ability to do two things in different parts of the world is really, really important. Our military is not up to that. And, and the readiness levels and the age of the equipment, you know, the ability to fly and drive and shoot and train and all that stuff is just so low, we just had to lower the overall score for military power uh, to that score of weak. Well, uh, you've given us several headlines there, and um, one of the ones that drew my attention in the report, was, which is excellent, is the, the flight hours in the Air Force. Can you explain uh, why it is that uh, we're not giving our young pilots the, the hours that they need in, in flight? So it's a money issue and it's a perspective issue. So if you only drove your car once a week and everybody was saying that's all you really need, you think you're probably a pretty good driver until you get into a dicey situation. You know, you're on a slippery road or uh, heavy traffic or something like that. And then you find out that maybe once a week isn't that isn't enough. And so if you've got a driver who's driving five or six times a week, you know, muscle memory, just a sense of what's going on. So for too many years, pilots um, have had this sense that flying just once or twice a week was good enough. And you supplement that with some study and maybe some simulator time, but you're good to go. Well, our operations in the last 20 years has been against terrorist groups and insurgents with no air power, no anti-air power, you know, any kind of air defense sorts of systems. And so your ability to do things becomes normalized that you think what you're doing is good enough. Right. So if we go back to the old days of the Cold War and you were actually flying against a competent, capable opponent, Air Force pilots would routinely fly 250, 300, more than 300 hours a year. Today, the average flight hours for an Air Force pilot across all type model series of aircraft is less than 120. And some of our most capable pilots and the most capable aircraft are down in the mid-70s, if you can imagine that, 74, 75 hours a year. So it's a funding thing. Can you, when you fund flight hours, you know, cost and fuel and repair on the airplane is one aspect. But then there's this other aspect of, do I think I'm flying enough to be competent? Well, how do you measure competence? And so those things are really in question. And that service in particular in that area of flight hours but we think we see echoes in other areas of military training in the other services. Yeah, could you speak uh, to the, the U.S. Navy? Uh, you've mentioned that the, the fleet is about half the size it was in the Cold War, uh, but uh, I think you've told me before that we have about the same number of ships out at any given time uh, deployed. So what does that do to uh, Navy morale and uh, recruitment and retention and just overall readiness? Well, like the congressman, I'm a former Marine as well. So I tried to keep things simple. If I have two cars at home and I'm running errands and I can use both, you know, the wear and tear on a car is what it is. 
if I lose one of those vehicles and now I have to do everything with one, I have doubled the load on that. It's going to wear out faster. The tires wear out faster. You know, those sorts of things, right? If I have fewer people making those deliveries, you know, the time spent. So the same thing occurs with platforms, and Navy ships are a great example of this. If you were near 600 ships at near the end of the Cold War, and you kept 100 deployed on average each day, and then today you have 292, I think I checked the numbers this morning, so half the number of ships, we still have 100 deployed every day. So each crew on those ships is working twice as hard. You're deploying the ships twice as often. Maintenance problems increase. You get into a shipyard. There are more things broken that I have to repair. The ship stays in for a longer period of time. So you can see how the backlog of maintenance of other ships waiting their turn, other crews waiting for their rest and to meet their families again, right? So when you have too few uh, things, whether it's a plane or a ship, um, and they're still working at the same operational tempo, the system starts to break down. Well, we're going to have uh, time for audience questions in just a moment. I've got one more while you're thinking of your question. Uh, and that is, uh, I remember when I worked for Vice President Cheney, he used to talk about the Defense Department that he inherited when he was Secretary of Defense, and that uh, it wasn't something that was built in a day. It was because of the Reagan defense buildup all through the 80s that allowed us to have a, uh, you know, a, a decisive impact and, and win and against uh, Saddam Hussein. We invaded Kuwait. And I think the military spending in the mid-80s was over 5% of GDP, about 5.7%. Today we're at about 3%. Uh, can you talk to us about what it's going to be necessary to do over a long period of time in order to get us prepared to fight another major war. So my colleague Brent Sadler and I have friends in the submarine industry, and they will say that to train a welder to do the specific exotic welding that you would need to keep the submarine operational under the sea takes about five years. So if you wanted to expand production of a particular thing, you have to hire the workforce, you have to train them to a level of competency before you can even start delivering new materials uh, to your force. Um, the congressman had spoken about the munitions that we're providing to Ukraine in their war, uh, trying to defend their own country against Russia. Um, uh, one of the companies that makes some of those missile items would say if you gave them a check today, uh, they would have a replacement munition in two to three years. Uh, the army dramatically shrank as uh, one uh, factor was sequestration, you know, the dramatic cut in funding. You can cashier or deactivate a, a, an army brigade overnight. It takes two and a half to three years to rebuild that, to get the staff work in place so that it's again competent. So there is this time consideration where it takes years to build ships, it takes years to train units, it takes years to replace uh, expended inventories of types of things. And if you're at minimum sustained rates, uh, meaning that you have a minimal workforce and you're only producing just enough things to keep the company in business. If you want to expand that, there is a huge delay. So this idea of an insurance policy of deterrent value of your force, part of that is, is associated with the money that you put into the system, right, to keep your forces healthy, to keep them trained, and to have good modern equipment. Yeah, and when we have a looming threat like China on the horizon, we have no excuse to not act today to build that army that we need for then. Um, okay, let's see. We have time for questions. We have any questions from the audience? We've got one in the back there. Wait for the microphone for the sake of our online and uh, audience. Uh, uh, good morning. Thank you for coming. Um, I'm an intern here, Vincent Palomo, uh, but I'll also be commissioning into the army in December. And as said before, 
the nature of the military is kind of changing and in some ways pretty demoralizing. And a big part of that, as um, Gallagher said in his intro, but didn't really touch it in his speech, was the personnel. And a lot of great people um, leave the military because it is such a demoralizing and unrewarding place to be for success. And that kind of leaves people who we don't want to be leading our military in, but also the people who leave, they're smart and they know what they're doing and they go to these defense companies and kind of perpetuate the never-ending cycle of development instead of actually creating a product that we can sustain as seen by all these aircraft and new Navy ships that don't work, we don't know how to use, and are inoperable. So what is kind of the plan to better the personnel in our military and ensure that we have strong leaders that can win a war? Thank you. That's a, that's a great question. Thank you for interning here, and thank you for your future service. Um, so what about recruiting? We, we note in the index that the Army has come up short of its recruiting goals. And so I wonder if you want to speak to that, and maybe Tom Spore uh, could chime in after that. I know he's uh, been looking at this issue intently as well. So there are a lot of layers to the, the comment and the question. You know, part of it is, is, is uh, convincing people that it's worthwhile to join, uh, retaining them over a period of time, and then when they leave, what do they do after that, right? So there's a lot of components to that. If you join the military to fly an airplane and you never get to fly an airplane, why would you want to stay in, right? When I came in the Marine Corps, I had a roommate who loved tanks, you know, so he wanted to be a tank officer. If you don't uh, go to the field and rehearse and practice and work on those things, then where's the motivation to stay in? So this high levels of training, challenging, uh, making those days and hours worthwhile is one component of retaining your personnel. If the military is being painted with a bad brush, that it's broken, everybody who joins suffers from PTSD, that it's rife with all kinds of predators, and that's a lot of what we see conveyed in the, in the literature and in the media, which is completely inaccurate, why would somebody want to join that? Uh, since 1980 or so, the American population has grown from 220 million to 330 million. And yet our military, and I'll use the Army as an example, has shrunk from 770,000 active duty soldiers to 450,000. So you've got these, these two trend lines where more and more people have less and less access to a smaller and smaller military. So the individual person just doesn't have a reference point. Right. So part of this, and Congressman Gallagher talked about it, is this need on a national level to have a discussion about the nobility and value and importance of military service, that we fund the military such that pilots can fly and ship drivers can drive their ships and tank guys can go to the field and shoot rounds. You know, there has to be a sense of worthwhileness for all of these sorts of things. And I think a lot of those things are off course. So having this kind of discussion and dialogue uh, you produce great citizens for the country that then go back out. They're more civic-minded. They're more involved in their own communities. So it's a virtuous cycle if you can kind of kickstart that again. And, and the Heritage Foundation has put together a national-level commission to look at this idea of recruiting and volunteer service specifically associated with the military. And General Spohr, who leads our uh, defense center, uh, will help to chair that. We've got members from Congress involved. And it's this idea of what are the obstacles to recruiting? How do we make uh, serving in the military valued and seen as worthwhile? And we're looking forward to the results of that uh, that effort. Anything you'd add to that, General Spore? I know you gave an excellent speech at no. Hillsdale on yeah, uh, recruiting. Thank you. And, and yeah. Dakota really captured it. You know, when they talk about COVID, they talk about the people that are going to have the worst outcomes are the ones that have comorbidities. And so they have 
they're obese and they have this problem and they have that problem. And that's what's recruiting right now is it is a collection of comorbidities, if you will. And so the current labor market where unemployment is 3.5%, the lowest it has been in anyone's memory, the small number of Americans that can qualify for military service, only 23% of Americans can qualify to come in the military, mostly because of obesity, some because of drug use, some because of mental health issues. But then you combine that with the issues that Dakota talked about, just a decreasing propensity on the part of young Americans to serve in the military. And so we have to make the case to young Americans why they should serve. And the old arguments about college aid and things like that are not attracting young people nowadays. They're just not working. And so we can increase recruitment bonuses, enlistment bonuses. Money isn't touching this generation, and we have to think about this problem much more differently than we have in the past. And so I think that's the, the work that's cut out for all of us. We look forward to the results of that commission. That'll be really helpful. Uh, we have uh, more questions. I think we've got one here. Maybe have time for, for two more. Hi, uh, Lauren Fish, L3 Harris. What do you all make of the seemingly growing disconnect between the urgency that we hear on Capitol Hill, including with Representative Gallagher, about the China challenge, the Davidson window? You know, clear senior leaders at DOD also expressing a time frame of five to seven years of a Taiwan challenge. I've heard even sooner, potentially, from Capitol Hill leadership. And the lack of urgency, it seems, in the acquisition process, you know, if we're really looking at a five-year time frame, why aren't we stockpiling the way Cap uh, Representative Gallagher indicated today? Why aren't we buying more F-35s, things that can run off the production line right now? Um, we have about two, maybe three POM cycles before 2027. So how are we actually, like, what do you make of that disconnect? Does DOD not really see the challenge, or is it just bureaucratic inefficiency. Did you want to take that? Well, Dakota, I'm going to hand over to you, but I think it's an excellent question. You you note in the index that China is our biggest threat. It's a, you know, pure or peer or near peer competitor and that we have to be ready to uh, deter them uh, and if necessary fight them. So, how would you um, compare China versus Russia and are we really ready uh, to uh, if we act now, will we be ready to be able to confront and deter China? We've got this great graphic. It's a map-based thing in the index, and it talks about uh, NATO member country spending, right? And what you find is the people or the countries that are closer to Russia uh, approach their defense spending more seriously. And so those levels are up, and the further away you are geographically uh, or the more distracted you are with more social spending at home, the lower those levels are. So the, the challenge with the United States is we're 7,000 miles away from China, big Pacific Ocean. Uh, how does it really affect Wisconsin or Florida or Missouri, right? Uh, in Russia, well, they seem to be handling it. One, they're performing fairly poorly. The Ukrainians are just doing extraordinary things. So we're giving them all this stuff. But how does that translate into having a ready squadron or brigade back here in the United States? So the whole idea is this proximity to risk and whether you believe bad things can really happen. You know, we maintain insurance on our cars because we all know that at some point you're a great driver, so you'll not have to call an accident, but somebody else will bump into you, and so you carry insurance. Well, the military is our national insurance policy, but nobody wants to go to war. Few people believe we'll ever actually be at war. Integrated deterrence, you know, with diplomacy and economic you know, relationships will, will keep war from ever happening. So now you're a member of Congress. How do you make the case to your constituents that we need to increase defense spending? All politics are local. I'd rather have subsidized health care, subsidized education, subsidized whatever it might be, right? 
So all of this spending that occurs in Washington, D.C. goes to a lot of domestic issues. And if you want to put a dollar against defense, you're saying we actually might have to go to war. This would be the opponent. This would be the level of severity. And it's hard to really put data to that, you know, to say that by 2027, we will be at war with China. Uh, level of risk is high. And so I feel a sense of urgency to do something today to be ready for a battle that I'm promising you will happen five years from now. Well, you can't make those guarantees, right? So I think it's just it has to seep into the public psyche. Uh, members like Congressman Gallagher, you know, making the case uh, at a national stage level that these bad things do happen over which we have very little control over. You know, we didn't prevent Russia from going into Ukraine. I don't know if we can prevent Iran from actually developing a nuclear inventory of weapons. And yet once the bad thing happens, it's too late. And so I think it's just human experience, uh, intelligence and some wisdom that we know we have to be ready and we have to allocate some of the nation's treasury to that end. And, and I'm encouraged that what I'm seeing among conservatives on Capitol Hill, they're understanding the threat of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and I think uh, are seeing not just foreign policy, but domestic policy, trade policy, all in the context of the threat of communist China. It's one of the seven priority issues for the Heritage Foundation over the next two years as well to confront the CCP. And so I'm encouraged that there's a growing awareness. And I think uh, this is one element, one very important element that we be prepared for. We know the most, uh, the most effective way to prepare and to have peace is to be prepared for war. I know, I know we have yep. a few hundred people online. Yes. And Brent has been. Oh, OK. All right. So. He's over here in my blind spot. So let's hear an online question. Uh, yeah. So there's quite a lot of online questions. I'm going to try my best to weave those that haven't already been addressed by Congressman Gallagher or already yourselves. Um, there's several here that touch on posture question. And perhaps it's worthwhile maybe talking a little bit about that part of the index that talks about threat by regions and where there may be the need for more presence or, or posture changes. Your thoughts on that? And in to kind of cage the, the, the question a little bit, there was a concern about Ukraine, of course, in Europe. So what is this change or insights for our military posture in Europe? Uh, maybe also the Middle East a little bit on that. Uh, a direct question from tapping off the congressman's comments about Taiwan, uh, what needs to be in-country there as well as proximate. And then another question for, about North Korean belligerency that's uh, on the uptick. What needs to change in Japan and South Korea for U.S. military disposition that, you're, that the index might be pointing to? Well, we've got a quarter million words in the index that addresses all those. <laughs> so I don't know that we're going to get into a lot of detail. But, but in general, the posture is not what it was in the past. So uh, J.B. Venable, our, our colleague, uh, Air Force uh, career veteran, will often talk about that during the Cold War, the Air Force made 29 squadrons in Europe alone. Today, the active component of the Air Force has 32 total. So 32 across the Air Force active. In the old days, you would have 29 you know, just applied to um, uh, stationing in Europe. Uh, today, the U.S. Army only has two brigades, a striker brigade or an infantry brigade, permanently based in Europe, a far cry from the level of U.S. presence, again, back in the Cold War. So there's rotational armor types of capabilities. The same thing, dramatic drawdown on the Korean Peninsula, uh, minimal footprint in Japan, all things you know considered compared to the Cold War. 
So when the 90s occurred, we brought everybody back home and we maintained essentially a token presence abroad in these other regions. 9-11 happens, now it's counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, uh, primarily in Afghanistan and Iraq. And so we focus a lot of our operational presence there, but didn't really build up in any of these other locations in the world. So history has a way of coming back. Uh, Russia may be performing poorly, but look at the expenditure of munitions, the equipment, manpower, all the casualties and people that are pouring into that theater. So when we think about it from a U.S. presence perspective and our ability to support partners and allies, you just need more things forward postured. It takes 10 days to sail across the Atlantic. It takes three weeks to sail across the Pacific. And so, again, that temporal, that time component, once a crisis occurs, it takes you months to prepare and to deploy and get there into place. So treaty obligations, uh, looming threats, you know, China's military expansionism, the stuff that Russia's doing, Syria, Iran, uh, it just calls for a greater uh, level of attention and investment of U.S. capabilities to buttress what our allies are also reinvesting in. And I'll just kind of leave it at that and direct folks to the index, I think, for more detailed discussions. Well, that's a good good place to end. We have uh, run out of time, but uh, we do have the index available. We also have, you know, it's a, it's a great diagnosis and a uh, description of where we are. We also have a series of recommendations that are available outside as well as to how to start to rebuild our military uh, in a way that will make us pr be prepared to keep the peace. I want to thank everybody here and thank you for those who are online who watched. And uh, until next time, thank you.